You're listening to South Asia Sphere from Himal South Asia, a bi-weekly roundup of what's been happening across South Asia. This episode was recorded on February 6th, 2023. Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere. I'm Raisa Vikramatunga, Deputy Editor of Himal South Asia, and I'm joined by my colleague and researcher Saheli Vikramanayaka from Colombo. Hi Saheli. Hi. So this week for our big story, we'll be looking at Myanmar 2 years on since the military coup. We'll also be continuing our conversation from the last episode on the crises in Pakistan, specifically the rise in militancy and the worsening economic crisis. In around South Asia in 5 minutes, we'll be looking at the fallout of the Hindenburg report on Adani Group. the arrests of Siddiq Khappan in India and Imran Riaz Khan in Pakistan, the citizenship saga of Rabid Lamichane in Nepal, the release of Vasant Mudalige in Sri Lanka, and the presidential primaries in Maldives. For Bookmarked, we'll be talking about the documentary Elephant Whisperers that was recently nominated for an Oscar. But let's start off with what's happening in Myanmar. soldiers in the streets of the capital Nebidor and Yangon city. But if the generals thought it would be a bloodless coup, they couldn't have been more wrong. February 1st actually marks 2 years since the military coup in Myanmar. So on Twitter we actually saw some people posting that very well-known aerobics video where an instructor was dancing and you could see people driving into the palace and remembering this day but on a more serious note since that day there's been a crackdown on freedoms of speech association and assembly so far at least 17000 protesters and activists who have been resisting the coup have been arrested and 2900 killed And these figures are according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, which is a non-governmental group. The security forces have carried out arbitrary arrests, torture, sexual violence, mass killings, and other abuses that amount to crimes against humanity, according to Human Rights Watch. This includes the blocking of humanitarian aid to displaced people in conflict areas like Rakhine State. The day itself uh, this year was marked with silent strikes across Myanmar from Yangon to Moniwa and Mandalay. Businesses remained closed and residents stayed indoors, although there were some pro-regime rallies held in Yangon and Mandalay. Now this is the fourth silent strike since March 2021, despite the junta threatening business seizures and prosecutions, and the aim of it was to show that people don't support the military regime. Yeah, and looking ahead at the year for Myanmar, on February 1st, military leaders announced that the state of emergency that was imposed after the coup would be extended for another 6 months. This essentially means that the elections that were announced for later this year will be delayed. So really all signs point to another very bleak year ahead of Myanmar and its citizens. If you're interested in reading about life in Myanmar after the coup, Check out our previous coverage linked in the episode notes. The question of security lapse is there. Uh I admit that yes there was a security lapse. 
Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif has reiterated that the country was facing substantial financial challenges. The record high inflation is attributed to the government's move to implement tough IMF conditions. In Pakistan, there's been this series of crises, especially in terms of security. On January 30th, there was a suicide bomb attack at a mosque in Peshawar, which was built for police and their families. The death toll initially was reported at 100, but was revised back down to about 88. It was nevertheless described as the deadliest kind of incident in the area for a decade. Police confirmed that the bomber entered the compound in a police uniform and wasn't checked. The police chief of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, Muazam Ja Ansari, confirmed the bomber was actually part of a militant network without giving more details apart from acknowledging a security lapse. Now, this attack is the latest in an increasing number of attacks carried out by militant groups. The TTP, the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, first took responsibility for the attack and then denied involvement, saying that they didn't target religious institutions. Daesh, or the Islamic State faction in Pakistan, also took responsibility and said that the bomber came from neighboring Afghanistan. Now, in 2022, TTP carried out over 260 attacks, killing 419 people according to the Pakistan Institute of Peace Studies, despite being in peace talks with the Pakistan government, mediated by the Afghan Taliban. But rather than peace, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan seems to have strengthened militant presence, and this has led to people standing in protest, as we discussed in our previous episode of South Asia Sphere. And Pakistan also continues to feel the effects of the ongoing economic crisis. So in late January, it was reported that the country only had enough foreign reserves to cover three weeks of imports. The government is moving ahead with reforms pushed by the IMF to get funding. This includes removing controls on the exchange rate, which resulted in a drastic drop in the value of the Pakistan rupee. So on January 26th, the Pakistani rupee fell 9.6% against the dollar, the biggest one-day drop in two decades. And this is likely to exacerbate the already soaring inflation. Pakistan is also facing power cuts and long fuel queues. The story of debt crises continues to make headlines across the region. So Bangladesh recently secured a 4.7 billion US dollar loan from the IMF. Sri Lanka is progressing in talks with its creditors, who all expressed willingness to participate in debt restructuring talks. It's a critical time for all three countries, and if you're interested in learning more about debt restructuring and the debt crisis across the region, check out our latest South Asian conversation, linked in the episode notes. Thanks, Saheli. So yes, in short, like we were saying, Pakistan seems to be beset by crises, and it's affecting residents' economic well-being and physical security. It's also perhaps exacerbated by political instability after Imran Khan's surprise removal. Now, we recently published a piece on this by Salman Rafi Sheikh on how Pakistan should go back and revisit the 2010 reforms and significantly do away with the military's role in politics. This piece is a reminder of Pakistan's long struggle for political stability, and it's particularly relevant given the very recent news of Pervez Musharraf's death. Do look out for that in the episode notes as well. We're also hosting a Twitter space with Salman Rafi Sheikh on this topic, so keep your eyes peeled for that as well. And if you're looking for more context to Musharraf's death, 
do also revisit our piece from 2014 on the difficulties and implications of trying a military ruler in Pakistan for added context. And now for our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. In India, billionaire Gautam Adani's business empire was left in a crisis after a report by Hindenburg Research accused the Adani group of brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud. Since then, stocks in Adani companies have plummeted. According to Bloomberg, as of February 6th, Adani Group has lost 118 billion US dollars, which is more than half of the market value of its companies. Gautam Adani lost his status as Asia's richest person, falling below Mukesh Ambani, and he is no longer one of the top 10 richest people in the world. So the report has also had political consequences domestically in India. Adani is long reported to have had a close relationship with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. This has become an issue in both houses of the Indian Parliament, which were adjourned recently after the opposition called for a probe into the allegations made in the report. The Indian National Congress announced that it will be holding protests on February 6th and accused Modi and his government of using public money to help the Adani group. The INC also recently concluded its 135-day Bharat Jodo Yatra march from Tamil Nadu to Indian-administered Kashmir. The INC said that this march was in protest against the nationalist policies of the BJP. Also in India, Siddiq Kappan was released on bail after more than two years. He was arrested in Uttar Pradesh when he was covering a story about the rape of a Dalit woman. He was arrested under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. Similarly, in Pakistan, journalist Imran Riaz Khan was arrested on charges of hate speech and inducing violence under the Prevention of Electronic Crimes Act. Soon after, on February 3rd, the Lahore High Court ordered his immediate release. Both the UAPA and the PECA have been criticized as tools for the state to curtail freedom of expression, including of journalists. In Nepal, a member of the fledgling Rastriya Swatantri Party, Rabi Lamichane, found himself briefly stateless after the Supreme Court ruled that he had not applied for Nepali citizenship after giving up his US citizenship to contest in the elections. However, he was able to complete the process within two days and he was promptly reappointed as party head, although he lost his cabinet position as deputy prime minister and of minister of home affairs. Analysts questioned why he had been allowed to contest and why he hadn't applied for citizenship before deciding to contest. Just another day in turbulent Nepali politics. And in Sri Lanka, student activist Vasanta Mudalige was released from cases against him under the Draconian Prevention of Terrorism Act on January 31st. He spent five months in custody under the charges. The chief magistrate who released him said that the evidence suggested that the PTA was being willfully misused against him to keep him imprisoned. Now, Mudalige was a key figure in the Sri Lankan protests last year. And on January 30th, 12,000 affidavits seeking his release were handed over to the Attorney General. 
The PTA has long been used against minority Tamil and Muslim communities in Sri Lanka, and the government is now using it as a part of its effort to quash protests, especially against the economic crisis. From the Maldives on January 28th, the Maldives held presidential primaries with the incumbent president Ibrahim Soli pitted against former ally Mohammad Nasheed. Soli won the closely fought race, but Nasheed accused him of rigging and bribery. Central to this allegation was a removal of some 39,000 people from the party's registry, with Soli saying this was done in accordance with recent electoral law that required party members to re- register with fingerprinted membership forms. Political observers feel the fallout may split the Maldives Democratic Party ahead of the presidential election in September. This is given the very bitter mudslinging which was involved in the campaign. And now for our next segment, Bookmarked. Raisa, do you have any recommendations for this week? Thanks, Aheli. Yes, I do. So, this week, my recommendation is Elephant Whisperer, directed by Karthiki Gonsalves. The reason I'm recommending it is because there's been a lot of hype recently on RRR being nominated for the Oscars. And the two other films from the region being The Elephant Whisperer and All That Breathes, they've kind of got overshadowed. So I thought that we should throw some light on these documentaries. And Elephant Whisperer in particular kind of follows the story of an orphaned elephant called Ragu and a couple, Bomman and Belly, who are tasked with caring for him. And it's set in the Teppakadu elephant camp in Uti. It's a really heartwarming story about how they build this bond with this young elephant and kind of treat him almost as a member of the family. So it's kind of about coexistence, how they live in balance with nature. It's a very heartwarming story about elephant conservation as well. As I watched it, though, I couldn't help but also recall that poaching is a big issue in the South Asian region. At least in Sri Lanka, similar sanctuaries have sadly become a vehicle for elephants to be trafficked to temples and be given over as kind of gifts to the wealthy. And sadly, after the presidential election, laws were reversed to allow this to happen again. So I was thinking about all of that while I was watching this and the kind of darker side to it. But I think this movie really shows what happens when a family can kind of build a good rapport and kind of, you know, really nurture these young kind of orphaned elephants. Yeah, I watched it as well. And I have similar thoughts on it. I also couldn't help but think about the human elephant conflict itself and how the documentary kind of brushes over the issue. It it had the opportunity, I think, to maybe delve a little further into it. But I still enjoyed it. I think it was very heartwarming. And I love the way that the relationships between the humans and the elephants are portrayed and the relationships between the humans themselves was portrayed. It was very sweet and a nice watch, let's say. Yes, a very wholesome watch and a good counterpoint to all the madness that we're reading <laughs> in the news. And on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. We'll be seeing you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to South Asia Sphere. 
Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Himal South Asian social media channels to make sure you don't miss the next episode. Head to our website, himalmag.com, to see more of Himal's work. And please support our work by becoming a member. Check out our membership plans at himalmag.com slash membership.